We're good. All right, so let's open up with prayer tonight. Y'all please agree with me. There's power in unified prayer. So, Father, we come in Jesus' name and through his blood, and we just thank you tonight. We thank you so much for being able to be here. What an awesome presence of God here tonight. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Where would we be without the word of God as our anchor? And Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for the book of Revelation. We praise you. You alone, Lord, are worthy of all the glory, the honor, the power, the praise. As we come in Jesus' name and through his blood. Lord, we thank you for such an open heaven, your glory, your presence here. And Father, I thank you by the Holy Spirit even tonight. Everybody that's going to be listening to this, whether it's live or it's a recording, a podcast, a video, whatever. I thank you, Father, and the church is in agreement that your Holy Spirit move upon every one of us and help us, Lord, by the Holy Spirit to give you our best ear, our full attention, our focus, that we're locked in, focused mentally, our hearts are in tune with the Holy Spirit. And Father, by the Spirit, we ask you to touch our eyes and ears, that we have eyes and ears of the Spirit that we're able to see and hear and understand maybe what we couldn't before, but the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the deeper things. And Lord, I thank you for coming upon me and speaking through me everything that needs to be spoken under a strong anointing. And this word will go out as the parable of the seed and the sower. It'll go out as living seeds of truth sown into good soil of hearts and minds and lives around the world that are prepared even now by the Holy Spirit. And and the, the Holy Spirit will water that seed in our lives and cause it to take root in us and grow and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. Lord, let the wind of your Holy Spirit carry this out among the nations. Lord, it's going to get where it's supposed to go. It's going to accomplish what it's supposed to. Lord, we submit this unto you, and we know Jesus taught us the birds try to steal the seed. So, Lord, as a church, we agree together in the name of Jesus. We bind every satanic spirit that would try to hinder this word from getting where it's supposed to get and accomplishing what it's supposed to. We command you to be bound right now and back off in Jesus' name. And Lord, I thank you for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I thank you for your mighty angels just clearing away any warfare, any resistance or whatever. This is going to accomplish what it's supposed to. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray tonight. Everything be accomplished. God's will be done. Amen. All right. So last, uh, last time we looked at Revelation, we looked at Revelation chapter 17. And it's the unification of the religious system. I I don't have time to get back on that very long at all, but chapter 17 deals with um, religious Babylon, okay? So it's the false prophet, it's his arena where he finds a way to bring together on some kind of common ground all the various religions, And as he's able to do this, it brings a unity like no other time. How many knows that down through history, one of the greatest things that has divided humanity is what? Religion. And he's going to be able by Satan's power to accomplish something nobody else has really ever been able to do. And that is to find common ground for all religions to worship together, except true biblical Christianity. But there will be a counterfeit Christianity, see, that is institutionalized, that that is very worldly. They they do not require a new birth. They don't adhere to the word of God. They don't repent of their sins. It's not real. It's just in name only. But there will be a counterfeit, like a false Christianity that will be in there. But you can see it moving that way. How many have seen the trends for the last couple decades? For example, the Pope has been doing a lot of things to bring religions together. But it's interesting because 
If you look at our society, no other time in American history do you see it like you have the last couple decades. You see, for example, those bumper stickers and all this about coexist, don't you? See, that right there is the false prophet's work. The Bible says that he is doing that. And there's a spirit about that trying to to bring together all these religions and and the mindset, like I wrote on here, the mindset that all roads lead to God. Well, they don't. If you believe that, one guy said, why don't you just get out here and just choose any road and it'll take you home? Just... But anyway, you, you, we all know that there's only one path that's through Christ, but the mindset that what is ever, whatever is good for you is good for you, it'll get you to heaven as long as you're a good person, all of that is a false gospel, okay? It's a counterfeit. And that false Christianity will go along with that, but... We know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father but through me. So there's not going to be any other path to God that he accepts except through Jesus, through what he did on the cross, his shed blood, that's it. There's no other way. That's the end of it. But this false uh, unification, this ecumenical movement, will find a way to, to make every religious movement seem like they're on a good path and that they're all enlightened And I believe that the Antichrist will be all things to all people, if you will. There's going to be such a satanic power about this guy. He will be like the Muslims, Mahdi to them, their, their Messiah. He will be like that to them. And some people believe that he'll be a Muslim, and I don't know about that. I don't know. He might. I'm not saying he won't. I just think that it's going to be a lot bigger than just Islam, in my opinion. So he'll be like the, the Mahdi to the Muslim. He'll be like a reincarnated Buddha to the Buddhist. Does this make sense? To the Jew, he's going to be like the son of David because he's able to bring a peace covenant. He's able to have them rebuild their temple and start their rituals again, etc. So to the world, the Antichrist will be a savior. And he'll be kind of all things to all people. And um, the world will come together under that false prophet in in a religious way, but that will be passed to the political to help him rise to power. So I'm going to read, last time we looked at Revelation, we dealt with religious Babylon, and now we're going to deal with political Babylon. So the false prophet is over religious Babylon, and the Antichrist will be over political Babylon. So let's read Revelation chapter 18, starting with verse 1. After these things, John, he said, I saw an angel come down from heaven having great authority. So don't let these things, don't just let this go past you tonight. This angel had great authority and the earth was illuminated with the glory that was coming off this angel. Isn't that awesome? In verse two, it says, and he cried out with a mighty voice saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Why does it say it twice? Because it will be religious Babylon, then it will be political Babylon. You see, there's two falls. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean hateful bird. For all the nations have fallen because of the wine. So the unclean spirits, so you see that Babylon... Political Babylon, which I'm going to explain, is going to be destroyed. It's going to fall. It's going to be destroyed. And in its destroyed condition, 
The Bible says it's going to be a place where all these demonic spirits and fallen angels seem to dwell. They seem to come there. They seem to dwell there. And, um, and then in verse 3, it says, For all the nations have um, fallen because of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed sacks of, acts of sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich from the excessive wealth of her luxury. So again, sexual immorality is not literal sex, but it has to do with the idolatry. So the nations are going to worship the Antichrist. They're going to worship his image. They're going to take his mark. And as they're doing this, they're denying the one true God. They're denying their creator. And so the nations have become drunk with idolatry. And that's what it's talking about here. Now, if you read Isaiah chapter 34, I believe that that is a parallel to Revelation 18. So if you want to do a Bible study this week, read Isaiah 34. In Isaiah 34, it talks about the destruction of the nations, and it says this. It says in verse 13 and 14 that it becomes a habitation. Now, different translations will say different things, but it's, it's a habitation for dragons and beasts and satyrs, and the screech owl is actually in Hebrew Lilith. And these are references to demonic spirits, fallen angels, that it's going to become a habitation for. But Isaiah 34 is a prelude for Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35, it starts talking about the river flowing, and it starts talking, it's basically a messianic prophecy of the coming Messiah and how the world is going to become again like the Garden of Eden. So first you have Babylon, you have the destruction of the nations, but that yields way to the coming of the Messiah who's going to reestablish the earth like a Garden of Eden again. Isn't that awesome? All right, and then in verse 4, it says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive any of her plagues. So tonight I'm going to close with that, and we're going to look at that together because I'm very concerned about some things I see. As Christians, we have got to be repentant of sin. And, and I hate to say it, but there, there are actually people out there teaching the opposite of that. And they're teaching in a way that makes people feel that they don't have to repent. And that's a very scary doctrine. But anyway, the Bible warns us, body of Christ, hear me, those that are listening to this, the Bible warns us to come out of Babylon, my people. Repent of all of our worldliness, all of our immorality, all the things that's been in our lives to repent and come out of Babylon, okay? And we will not share in the plagues that are coming. In verse 5, it says, For her sins have piled up as high as the heaven, and God has remembered her offenses. Pay her back, even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. It's talking about the whore of Babylon. There's the religious, now we're in the political right now. It says, To the extent that she glorified herself and lived in luxury... Okay, to the same extent, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen. I'm not a widow and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come. Plague and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. So let me stop there and kind of explain this. So we know... 
going through this, remember, recap briefly. So the seven-year tribulation starts because the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel, this covenant. Once Israel signs a covenant with the Antichrist, they don't realize what they're doing, but they're basically coming in covenant with the devil, (laughs) which releases judgment. So this is the 70th week of Daniel. It's the days of Jacob's trouble. The center is Israel. Now, the first three and a half years, peace and safety. He comes, the Antichrist comes as a man of peace. He's unifying the world. The false prophet is assisting in that. But the first three and a half years, the the persecution and the martyrdom is against Christians because they will not take the mark. They will not bow down to this system. And so they're going to be persecuted. They're going to be marginalized and they're going to be martyred. And we know that because the Bible shows us tribulation saints under the altar. Then, once that season is done, the first three and a half years, then we know that the Antichrist really changes. He shows his true nature. And he goes into Israel, into the temple, sets himself up as God in the temple. They've been offering up their sacrifices, but he says all that comes to an end now. He sets up an image, an idol of some kind, and he demands that Israel and the world will worship him as God and his image. Israel won't do it, so he releases his military to now slaughter the Jews. That system of Babylon's already martyred the Christians. Now he's going after the Jewish people, and he's able to kill two-thirds of them. But one-third is supernaturally protected, probably in Petra. And here's what's going to happen. This is now we're going to look at political Babylon's fall. So the Antichrist has really consolidated his kingdom by this point. Y'all really look this way and give me your best ear so you can understand this. He's going to be over the old Roman Empire, which is all of Western Europe into Turkey, okay? And then from Turkey down the Middle East to around the Egypt border. That's going to be his centralized power that he rules the world from that, but his rule will be over the whole world because Satan's going to give him his throne. So it seems as though, as he has come to this place of rulership, that the world has entered into unprecedented wealth and luxury. And the kings of the earth have no problem taking his mark, worshiping him, worshiping his image. And they've been able to have various types of trade and, and, and all of this with just great wealth, a great time of prosperity. But God is going to do this. God is going to have his two witnesses in Jerusalem, which are Moses and Elijah. And they're going to be probably the only real voice of God in the earth, except there's going to be like an angel flying overhead yelling the gospel, according to this book. But they're going to be, the the prophets are going to be speaking out against the Antichrist and speaking out against Babylon. And they're going to be preaching the gospel. And here's what I believe they're going to do. They're also going to be prophesying the plagues that are coming. And it's going to be just like it was. Y'all, please catch this. Just like it was when Moses was on the earth before, standing before Pharaoh, an antichrist, if you will, and he's speaking against things, and he's saying, let my people go, and because you won't, this plague's going to come. You see, it's going to be very similar 
And they're going to be speaking out because the world, something like this, okay, I'm just paraphrasing and speculating, but they're going to be speaking out loud because the world will not repent of its witchcraft and won't repent of its idolatry and in all of its immorality and its bloodshed. They've shed the blood of the saints and they won't repent and, and they're going to be preaching the gospel and they're going to be saying these things. Because of this, then this plague is going to come and it's the bowls of wrath. The seven bowls are going to be unfolding and taking place during this time. Well, here's what's going to happen. The Antichrist has, has established this kingdom of great wealth and prosperity, but God is going to start sending his plagues, and his plagues are going to be so incredibly destructive on the Antichrist world system over all of Europe, the Middle East, and probably the rest of the world, but really centralized in that area, that just like Pharaoh, can you imagine being in Pharaoh's shoes? All of their crops were destroyed. Their animals were killed. Their, the Nile was turned to blood. All their fish died. At the end of those plagues, Pharaoh was probably just standing there. His greatest um, men in the military died in the sea. He's sitting back at the end of this thinking, man, his kingdom was decimated. His economy was decimated. The judgments of God in those bold judgments are going to come down and they are going to destroy the Babylonian system economically, especially. And it's a judgment from God. And in that, you remember how there was a great earthquake? See, I wonder about some things. I I'll, I'll give you some speculation that I'm not emphatic about it. I'm just putting this out there. The Antichrist could have some kind of a centralized place, like a, just like in America we have the White House, okay? He could have some kind of a centralized place. Who knows? It could be in Brussels. It could be somewhere closer to where the United Nations meet. I don't know. But I wonder if it's not going to be in Iraq. I don't have time to talk a lot about this, but let me just give you this. In modern-day Iraq, that was where the Garden of Eden was originally. Okay, you can do the math by the, the way the Bible describes its location. That's where it was. So it's a place of great rebellion. Later, we know under Nimrod that that was the place of great rebellion where they built the Tower of Babel. Later, it became known as Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. And there's still things architects are finding there that go way back to this time. But, you know, in Saddam Hussein, when he had Iraq, he was building, rebuilding Babylon. And he was making coins that had Nebuchadnezzar's face on one side and his on the other. You know, he was a narcissistic guy, but, but he was trying to kind of rebuild that Babylon. But whenever, and see, this is how we don't always understand the big picture. I'm just going to give you something to think about. Just this, I'm just thinking with you about this. But see, America goes in there and takes out Hussein and, and does what we do. And then after that, there's kind of a void there. You remember ISIS comes in there? And they begin to slaughter all the Christians and all those that escape left that area. Iraq, from what the last time I heard, Iraq has absolutely no Christianity. They were either martyred or fled. That's ancient Babylon. I'm just wondering, but it would be interesting if the Antichrist was to have some kind of a centralized place like 
the White House here in America if he did it in Iraq? And wouldn't it be interesting if his kingdom, he called it something like New Babylon? Wouldn't it be interesting if an insignia of that kingdom was something that had a dragon in it? Because people worship the dragon in, in here. And that system from Iraq, and I don't know that this will happen, I'm just thinking out loud with you, but that system is going to unify the currencies of the world. They may still keep their names, but it's going to become digital. So you're no longer going to have cash. You're going to, it's through like the internet, all of your banking. And so they end up, the false prophet ends up making everybody take a mark You can't buy or sell without it, most likely, because it's going to have, like, your debit card in your wrist or your forehead. And if they don't like what you're doing, they can just turn off your card. And you won't be able to buy or sell without, you see what I'm saying? So it's going to be total control, but the Antichrist may rule from that part of the world. But as he sets up his kingdom and all this great prosperity is going on, God's going to send his judgments. And you remember reading about this. Eventually, there's going to be a great earthquake. And here's how Babylon is going to fall. It says here in a day. So if this is a literal day, then there is going to be like a a 24-hour period a day of great destruction. If you read the description, it seems that the plagues of God are going to come down And the Antichrist, his kingdom is going to be so weakened by that. And China, the kings of the east, which is China, is going to see that he's in a very weakened place. And they're going to target him. They're going to go to war. The Euphrates is dried up to make way for them. And some Bible scholars I was just reading, and I tend to agree with this, believe that China may very well nuke his headquarters which would explain some things in here, that it will be a haunt for demons and nobody else will live there. You see? But they're going to nuke it and destroy it in a day. So this is just some things to, to speculate and wonder about because it says the Euphrates dries up to make way for them. If he is in Iraq and that's where his headquarters is, I could see where they could send in some missiles and destroy his headquarters. All right. So let's go back to verse 8. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come. So at at that mark of the first three and a half years, right in the middle of the tribulation, remember, the Antichrist wants to do away with religious Babylon, all that ecumenical, one-world religious system, because he wants everybody worshiping him as God. So he literally destroys it. Like, for example, bombing the Vatican, that type of thing. He literally destroys it. And he says, no, you're going to worship me as God. And then now it moves to political, and God's going to use probably China or somewhere like that to finish that destruction by bombing his headquarters, and it's destroyed. Isn't that something? All right, it says that your plagues will come, mourning and famine, and she will be burned with fire. You see that? That right there, to me, indicates some kind of a bomb, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. And then in verse 9, now, I I wanted to explain all that because of this. And the kings of the earth 
who committed acts of sexual immorality and lived luxuriously with her will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke of her burning. You see, they lived in luxury. They committed acts of sexual immorality, meaning they worshiped the Antichrist, they worshiped his beast, they, they, they worshiped his image, rather, they took the mark. And they, because of that, they had trade and they had great wealth. And they see the smoke of the burning of this bombed out, destroyed headquarters of Babylon, the smoke coming up. And they stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth, these are people that made great wealth because of their trade. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over Babylon because no one buys their cargo anymore. The cargo of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every article of ivory, every article made from very valuable wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, perfume, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, cargo of horses, carriages, slaves, and human lives, which that implies slavery and maybe even sex slavery. In verse 14, the fruit of you long for, um, the fruit you long for has left you. And all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and the people will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning. See how the world responds to God's judgment? They're weeping and mourning, saying, woe, woe, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and all who make a living by the sea stood at a distance. So you can see that they would be back there, maybe in the Mediterranean or whatever, seeing the smoke of that whole thing that had been so destroyed going up, and it was such a large-scale destruction. You could see it from a great distance. Verse 18, and they were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping in the morning, saying, woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich from her prosperity, for in one hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice, but this is what God says to his people. The world is mourning at Babylon's destruction, the great city. But the Bible says to God's people, rejoice over her, O heaven. You saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Then a strong angel picked up a stone like a great millstone and threw it in the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will never be found again. And the sound of the harpist, the musicians, the flute players, the trumpeteers will never be heard in you again. No craftsman of any craft will ever be found in you again. And the sound of the mill will never be heard in you again. And the light of the lamp will never shine in you. And the voice of the groom and the bride will never be heard in you again. For the, your merchants were the people of the earth. And because all nations were deceived by your witchcraft. That's an interesting scripture. And in her was found, in her was found the blood of the saints and of all who have been slaughtered in the earth. God remembered how 
Babylon's system had martyred the saints. You know, even in Iraq, that ISIS, there's a lot of blood of martyrs that's there right now. So you can see here, isn't it interesting? I'll get into this later on when we look at the New Jerusalem. But isn't it interesting? The world is mourning over the great city Babylon, which was the best that the world and Satan could offer. But yet, we're looking like Abraham for a city whose maker and builder is God. And when Jesus comes, he's going to reign from physical Jerusalem for a thousand years and and make the earth again like a garden of Eden. But at the end of that thousand-year reign, the new Jerusalem is going to come down from heaven and settle down in that location. You see how the world had their city that they loved? But we're looking for God's city to come. And so Revelation 21, verse 5, and I'm just skipping ahead just to read this because it fits here. It says, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. See, after the fall of Babylon is the coming of Christ. It says, it is done. I am, speaking of Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water to those who thirst from the spring of life. See, that has to do with going from Isaiah 34, the fall of Babylon, to Isaiah 35, the river of God. Verse 7, the one who overcomes will inherit all these things, and I will be his God. He'll be my son. But let me come back to this in a moment because I'm going to close with this. So how many want me just just for about five minutes kind of explain where Peter talked about the burning of the elements and and the preparing of all things, okay? So here's how it's going to look in a nutshell. So after Jesus reigns for a thousand years, well, let me back up. So God brings judgment on Babylon. It's destroyed. And the nations, the militaries begin to gather to the Valley of Armageddon. They're there to destroy Israel. They're there to, to go to war. And um, Jesus is going to split the eastern sky and come, and they're going to try to turn on him, but he's going to slaughter them. He's going to come into Jerusalem. His feet are going to land on the Mount of Olives. He's going to go through that gate there, which is still sealed to this day, and they believe it's sealed till the Messiah comes. He's going to go through that gate. He's going to go into the temple area. But he's going to sit on the throne of his father, David, that Gabriel told Mary would happen. And he's going to reign as the Messiah for a thousand years out of Jerusalem over the entire world. And um, the world is going to be wonderful. But there's a lot of people that are going to be born during those thousand years that still have a sinful nature. And, and all they've ever known is the reign of Christ. They weren't alive to see what you and I have experienced, you see. So at the end of the thousand years, the Lord is going to allow the devil to be loose for a time to go through and kind of sift things and see who are going to be loyal to him and who aren't. And even though me and you, we're going to be warning people during that thousand years. Now listen, at the end of this thousand years, there's going to be this guy, the devil, that's going to be let loose. He's going to be going through telling you all these negative things about Jesus. He's going to try to turn you against Jesus. Don't listen to him. Okay, we were around when he was in the heavens and and we saw the destruction he did. He's a bad guy. He's a liar. Don't listen to him. But even though we warn them, the Bible says that those, their number is like the sand of the seashore. That's how many people 
are going to follow him again at the end of the thousand years. They're going to march up against Jerusalem and try to dethrone Jesus. Fire is going to come down from heaven, fry all of them. The great white throne will happen. But anyway, at the end of the thousand-year reign, see, the Holy Spirit right now, he is preparing us for Jesus' coming. But Jesus, for that thousand years, is going to be preparing the world for the Father to come. So at the end of the thousand years, Peter said, the sky is going to roll back and there's going to be these elements that are burned with fire and all of that, what's going to happen is this. There's going to be some kind of a spiritual fire. Those that are still here that have a natural body, will be, it'll be glorified. It's like the, another resurrection, if you will. They're going to have glorified bodies. But there's going to be a fire that burns the heavens and consumes the earth and it's going to make the atmosphere of the earth identical to that of heaven. Does that make sense? So the fire of God's going to come and purge the elements of the earth where it's no longer got any natural element that we're used to, but it's just going to be heavenly only. And everybody that's here now are those that have remained faithful to the Lord, even through the final sifting that was permitted. Everybody at this time will have glorified bodies. And the Bible says that the new Jerusalem, which is a city 1,500 miles wide, that's like from here to California, and 1,500 miles wide this way as well, and it's going to be 1,500 miles tall, but I I don't believe it's going to be a cube. I think it's going to be more like a, a mountain look. But it's going to settle down upon Jerusalem. And the Bible says there's not going to be any more sea. Now, that's interesting. There's not going to be any more sea. So there's not going to be a Mediterranean. This thing is going to settle down there at Israel, over Jerusalem, and it's going to be the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth. And that makes a lot of sense here whenever the Bible says, Jesus says, I'm the one who sits on the throne here. He says, behold, I am making all things new. Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I give water to those who thirst from the springs of life and without cost. And those who, the ones who overcome will inherit these things and I will be as God, he be my son. But here's the warning and I'm going to close with this tonight. We have got to be a people that will really repent and let God soften our hearts How many knows that God wants a humble people? You see, pride causes people to kind of have a hardened heart. Pride causes us to be stubborn and somewhat rebellious, slow to repent, slow to listen. Pride causes that stubbornness, that rebelliousness, and even being defiant. That goes back to pride. But the Lord wants us to really humble ourselves and really repent. And the Bible says here in verse 8, but the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable, and that means those that are defiled, they're unclean spiritually. The murderers, and I might add that, that hating people in your heart is murder according to God. 
the sexually immoral, and that's any sexual activity outside of a husband and wife in marriage, that's it. Anything else is sexual immorality in the Bible. And the sorcerers, and that implies anything to do with the occult, the dark arts. All idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me saying, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. You see, we're living in a time where there's a great sifting going on right now. Now, the Bible predicted this, and I want you to be aware of it because you're seeing it with your eyes right now. The Bible predicts in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, before the Antichrist emerges, it says there will be a great falling away. And you're seeing all over the world all these, these people that have professed Christianity in the past, but you're seeing everybody that's not really truly the Lord's and they're not repentant. Many are now falling away and they're abandoning the faith altogether. How many can say that they personally know somebody? I know several that used to be a Christian, used to live for the Lord, that they're away from God now big time. I mean, if they die, they're, they're probably absolutely not going to go to heaven from what I see. They're living in total sin. But at one time, they were with the Lord. See, there's going to be a great falling away. And here's some interesting things. I'm, I'm going to get to some stuff here, and we're going to pray. Let me give you a few of Jesus' teachings. So he taught about the parable of the wheat and tares. So in the parable of the wheat and tares, I'm not going to read it, but there was a man who had a field of wheat. And in the night, the enemy, one of his enemies came and sowed tares among the wheat. What a tear is, it's a weed that looks just like wheat. So in other words, there was a mixture there of both wheat and tares, and you couldn't tell them apart until it's harvest time because the, the wheat would actually produce grain at the top, and the weight of that would cause it to bow over, and, and tares had no grain. They were worthless. There's weeds. And Jesus told the parable, and in the parable, he said that the Lord would send his angels to separate the wheat from the tares. Because you and I cannot actually do that. We really truly don't know sometimes who is truly the Lord's and who isn't because we may look at somebody and we may think because they're struggling in some areas of sin and they're not perfect or whatever, we might think, well, I don't really know. Is that person really a terror or wheat? We're not going to be able to know. But they could really be the Lord's. He's just still working on some things. Amen? But then you've got somebody else over here that may look so righteous and so pious, and, and you, we would think to ourselves, well, yeah, this guy is a Christian, but the Lord knows that they're not. You see, but God will, will use the angels to help separate the wheat from the tares because we're not going to be able to figure out every wheat and tare. God's, God can only do that. And the same thing in the days to come, there's going to be a great harvest. And so this goes along with that. There is the parable of the dragnet. You've got a boat that has a huge, massive net that they cast out there, and the boat just pulls it all the way to the shore. Everything that can be caught in the net is caught in the net. And let me tell you, when you go fishing, <laughs> my dad and I went, and my brother, for whatever reason, we caught all kinds of things, but he caught the ugliest, 
thing. The, this, it was a fish, right? It looked, like the, it looked like a fish and a frog had a baby. Dogfish. Okay, so all these ugly critters. I mean, you've got good fish that you can eat, but you've got everything else that's out there. An old boot. <laughs> everything that's out there is going to be drugged ashore. And then in Jesus' parable, they pull the net ashore, and the angels go and start separating the good from the bad fish. Why? Because our job is to bring in the net and let God clean the house. The good fish are going to have to be cleaned by God, but the bad fish, God's going to have to get rid of them, you see. So God is doing a sifting right now. There's a house cleaning. Who are really his and who are not. And anybody that's riding the fence is going to have to decide if they're going to be for the Lord and get real and repent and get real or they're not. And I love what Derek Prince said because there's all these people that ride the fence. They want the Lord, but they still want their sin or whatever. They're riding the fence. And Derek Prince said as soon, the first thing that God does in revival is he electrocutes the fence. He's going to give people a jolt, and they're either going to get right with the Lord or they're going to fall away. That's a good word. That's revival. Where God comes in to clean house, you're either for me or against me, quit playing games. And um, let me say something as a, like a shepherd speaking a warning. We know there's going to be this great falling away, but in my opinion, and I'm, I'm saying this out of concern with, the, with a sincere heart about this, I believe that one of the greatest problems in the American church over the last 20 years goes back to some of the trends that came out of the seeker-friendly movement, which at first I think had good motives and good intentions. But it quickly moved into about trying to make church about what man wanted, and it was man-pleasing. That's where they missed it. Because once you go that route, now... It has to become a social club. It has to become entertainment-based, program-driven. It's all about man-pleasing. Get Burger King Christianity. You have it the way you want it, when you want it, how you want it. It's about you and making you happy and you comfortable. But how many knows that Jesus taught us, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me to the death? It's not about you. It's about you actually being crucified with Christ, no longer living but Christ living through you, and there's a sacrifice in that. We lay down our lives for the gospel, that we're willing to die to our sin and be alive in Christ. We're willing to do things that our flesh doesn't want to do. You see, right now, the result of this movement that's been going on for 15, 20 years, you know what the result is now? You have COVID happen, and now churches all across this nation saying that there's about a third that they can't get back. I realize that some people may be elderly and they're just worried, and I get that. That's one thing. But there's a lot of them that could go to church, but now they have their excuse. There are tares among the wheat, and it's showing now, you see. And so my concern is, is that there hasn't been this real pure gospel being preached. And there hasn't been a message of repentance. 
And there hasn't been deeper teaching. I tell my wife, you know, and I say this in love, it's out of a right heart, it really is, that, that the teaching has been so watered down and so uh, to a place to where it's like stuff. Churches, even main services are teaching in a way that's on a level that when I was growing up in church would have been like junior high or high school level. It really is. I mean, stuff like they'll bring in uh, Toys R Us box of toys and drop it on the platform and go, you know, you don't know how to fix all this, but the instruction manual will show you how. And they talk about that stuff that we did in children's church. And I looked out at this at the audience, and I'm like, these are grown people. <laughs> and they're ooing and aahing about it. And I'm thinking, this is, this is not good. I mean, we... The Bible says for us to get off the milk and get on the meat. Amen. There needs to be a point in time where we actually grow up in Christ. And, I, and I, I've always been somebody that's studious and I read and I, I, I'm trying, man, to read some of the newer writings that are coming out, but it's so shallow. The books are like, these are books that are supposed to teach you and they're more like daily devotionals with a little nugget of truth. And it's like watered down to the point of being something that, you know, when I was maybe a youth pastor would, would teach the youth. And I remember the days, and I'm not even that old. I'm in my 40s. I remember the days back whenever people were so hungry to go to church and learn the word of God. And there was people that we'd be teaching on end-time prophecy and people sitting there taking notes. They go home and study the word. They, they were hungry. I remember how people were so hungry and devoured the teachings of great generals that, that taught like Derek Prince and Kenneth Hagin and all these others. I mean, deep teaching, powerful teaching. People were hungry. And now they want this stuff that's like little kid teaching. Where's the hunger? And see, here's what's happened. While they're playing games, the end times is now upon us. And they're not ready. They don't know the Bible. They don't know how to pray. They don't know how to get a hold of God. They don't know what the anointing even is. You see what I'm saying? Because they've been playing church and being entertained with all this watered-down stuff, and, and it's all about them and about their flesh. They're not ready. And many of them are not able to endure what's coming upon the earth. Not that they're going to... I think that people think what I'm saying is not really actually what I'm saying. I'm saying that they're going to fall into temptation. They're going to follow into deception. They're going to get out of church and away from God because they're not going to be able to handle the spiritual warfare because they don't know how, because they haven't been taught. And it's already happening. A shepherd, let me give you a few warnings. A shepherd has to lead the sheep to green pastures. You know what green pastures is? That's living food from God. A shepherd's got to feed the flock and also lead them beside flowing waters of the Holy Spirit. And a shepherd, you know, David talked about anointing my head with oil and all that. You know, the shepherd would take oil and pour it on the head of the sheep and rub it in their eyes and around their ears, around it, and it kept off those tormenting bugs. The church, the shepherds are supposed to be people that are helping the flock to grow because they're actually learning the word of God. They're actually being taught the word. 
and they're being led into places of the rivers of revival, refreshing waters from the Holy Spirit that they can drink of, and to pray over them that the anointing of the Holy Spirit is keeping the tormenting bugs of the enemy off of them. How many have come in and you, you had a rough week, but you came into church and you felt at some point in time you had a really difficult, you were going through stuff, but you came to God's house and you felt so refreshed. You learned there was a fresh anointing and you left out of here feeling totally different than you came in. How many have ever experienced that? Because I have. Let me give you just a couple quick things. In these latter days, how many knows that there's going to be wolves? That are out there. A lot of times wolves speak of evil people, but I'm also speaking of demonic warfare, things like that. We've got to stay in God's house and stay in revival. You know what keeps away the wolves? A roaring fire. If a church is on fire and the fire is burning bright, it helps keep the wolves away. Number two, we're going to have to be unified in meeting together. The devil really thought this thing through, didn't he, about this pandemic because it has done so much uh, in such a short amount of time in so many areas, not the least of which the devil has gotten a lot of people out of church. And the Bible says as all the more as we see the day approaching, we should be meeting together, not forsaking the assembling, all the more as we're seeing the incoming. You see, the devil wants to pick people off because they're outside of fellowship. They're away from church. They're away from the strength they get from church. And everybody knows that's ever seen any type of nature show that the, the zebra or the antelope that leaves the flock is the one that is lion food. <laughs> Another thing is we've got to be undercover. It is so important. I don't think the American church really understands this, but there is a literal spiritual covering over those that humble themselves under the fellowship of local church and under that pastor in authority. It is there. You don't see it, but I'm telling you that angels see it and demons see it. There's some kind of a covering over you that you're not out there by yourself. You are underneath the covering of a local church. And I'm concerned that many people have gotten out of church and they don't have a covering. And they're vulnerable. The incredible importance of unity. One of the greatest battles that the devil tries to do, he'll use gossip or whatever, people getting offended. They start talking bad about so-and-so. And the devil's greatest attack is to get a church at odds with each other in all kinds of divisions and schisms because then he's able to come into that and bring all kinds of destruction. But when a church is unified, they can chase the devil off, you see. When a church comes together in unity, <clears throat> and that's kind of like the same scenario when you have all the antelope together and something a predator tries to come then all the strong can turn and try to resist or whatever. But when everybody's in unity, it, there's, a, there's a resistance against the enemy. But whenever they're all fighting with each other. I saw a, an actual video that was really good. 
and there were two male deer that had locked horns fighting, and there was a lion that was running in the distance, and they didn't even know it because they were so busy fighting with each other until the lion attacked them. Satan roams also in dry and dark places where people are spiritually dry and things have become spiritually dark. That is where the enemy traffics. We've got to stay in the light of God's word in the rivers of revival. Also, vultures are drawn to dead carcasses. We, listen, we've got to stay strong in our personal prayer life. You see, vultures are drawn where there's death. And people that are spiritually dying, the vultures try to come in and begin to really oppress their life. But if you're staying on fire by walking in forgiveness and walking in holiness and keeping a strong prayer life, it keeps the vultures away. Also, infections come by unhealed wounds. We better make sure that we truly forgive people from our hearts because that bitterness can begin to set up like a spiritual infection in you. If you really forgive from your heart, there's healing that can come. All right. So when the Bible says, come out of her, my people, I'm just going to give you a couple things tonight that we're simply going to pray about together. We're going to pray these together. But 1 Peter 3, 7 Husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Everybody see that? Let me read that again. Husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner. So it's the way we treat people, isn't it? It says, as heirs of the gracious gift of life so that your prayers won't be hindered. I wonder how many people... Come to church, but there's things, not only this, but there's things that are hindering their prayers. Because if we're not careful and we're walking in pride, the Bible says we're going to be resisted. If we don't forgive other people, our prayers are not going to be answered. If we have unrepentant sin in our lives, our prayers are not going to be answered. I don't know about you, but I want to make sure that there's nothing in my life that's going to hinder my prayers. Let me just say this for all Christians and those in the ministry. One of the, the greatest prayers I believe that we can pray is, is something like this. Lord, search me and know me because you see things I don't. That you would search me and know me and push into my life, force your hand, and pry out of me whatever is not of you. Put in me what is of you. Change what needs to be changed, but make me trustworthy for what you're wanting to do through my life. How many knows that that is a wise prayer because you're putting it on the Lord? Lord, change me. Don't stop. Don't hold back. Force your hand. Do it in me. And you know what God will do? He'll begin to show you all the things that need to change, and it's going to be uncomfortable because you're going to begin to see things about yourself you don't like. But how many knows that everybody has that? But it's a great day whenever by the grace of God we can see the things in us that are not right that we never really saw before. It's, it's so easy, isn't it, to see it in other people. But all of a sudden we had 20-20 vision about them, but when we look at ourselves, we're as blind as a bat, right? But then the Holy Spirit comes in. And he says, this area of pride this area, you still have unforgiveness toward that person. 
this area you've been in lust, this area you've been doing this. And all of a sudden, it's like, Lord, forgive me. I love what Sergio Scataglini would always say in those revivals. He'd say, 98% holiness is not enough. God's wanting us to be pure, deeply consecrated unto him. And so this is what we're going to pray about tonight. I believe there's a fire of holiness in this place. Number one, is your home truly in order? Are husbands leading in the ways of God? Are wives submitting in everything as unto the Lord? And America is not a submitting country. You're going to have to go against the culture to live biblically in this area for sure. Are children honoring and obeying their parents? Is their home really truly in order the way God would say it's in order? Are spouses treating each other respectfully and in love? Or is there a lot of disrespect and fighting going on in the home? Are there idols in your life or ungodly spiritual connections? You still have connections to to other religions, maybe Freemasonry, areas of the occult, but some kind of idols or spiritual connections that are not good still in your life. Are there areas of occult practices or spiritual darkness? Do you still have things in your home, in your possession, that go back to these dark things, other religions, the occult? Are you messing with these things? Do you go to church and get prayer, but then go to a psychic or something or call somebody? And you, Maybe you go on the internet and you want to look at, read your horoscope or whatever. And let me tell you too, because this will really go over in America, but all this yoga stuff is not of God. It goes back to Hinduism, I'm just telling you. And uh, a lot of people just will not listen. That's, that's a stronghold, and that's just what they're going to do. But I'm just telling you that it's not spiritually safe, and it's not you're beginning to move into areas that are not good, and it's not biblical. And I know for an example, Derek Prince, when he got saved, he was actually delivered from a demon that was in his life from yoga. And he told that testimony a lot, trying to warn people. But you know how it is. Some, here's the thing. In the book of Proverbs, the wise will listen. So there we are. So you've got the occult practices, then you've got sexual immorality. Is any sex outside of marriage, I mean, sleeping around, adultery, anything, pornography, all of that in the Bible, sexual immorality. Is there sexual immorality? We've got to repent. The Bible says the sexual immoral will not go to heaven when they die. So let's ask God's forgiveness and let's repent. Also, clean out your home spiritually. Go through your home. Are there things in your home that go back to the occult or go back to pornography or something in your home that, that may be some movies that are X-rated or they're those uh, you know slasher movies that you don't need to be watching? And just you know that there's things there that aren't good magazines, whatever. Go through and get everything out that is not good for you spiritually. Clean house. I'm going to tell you, there's freedom in that. I love what Richard Crisco used to say. All these people come down at Brownsville and get saved, and and Richard get up there sometimes and share some things, and I used to love this example, and I'm going to use this in the days to come. And he said, you guys that were in high school, you remember when you had a a boyfriend, and, and he said that all of a sudden one day you broke up with him. He said, what do you do? You take the Letterman jacket and you throw it back in his face. 
You take the ring and you give it back to him. Everything that was his, you give it back to him because you don't want it anymore. He said, you better do that to the devil. Everything in your life that's the devil's, he said, you better throw it back in his face and get it out of your home and out of your life. Isn't that good? Clean out your home spiritually. Are there wrong people in your life? Are there people in your life that you know are toxic? You know that spiritually, they are nothing but a drag on you spiritually. You know it. They're dragging you down. Those people don't need to be in your life. In the days to come, it's better to walk alone with God than to be dragging along somebody that's constantly trying to pull you into something. Spiritually purge your life from any blood. And what I mean by that is, if you've been somebody that's been having abortions, or you've been a part of any type of violence, gangs, where there's been bloodshed, things like that, you need to repent and ask God's forgiveness for the shedding of blood and that God wash you clean from all that because I'm going to tell you that's a serious thing before God. It's murder. Ungodly entertainment. One of the greatest drags on people spiritually when they get saved is still having, you know, really ungodly music or really ungodly shows they're watching or really ungodly movies. These things are going to drag you down, and you know it. If you're watching something, people taking their clothes off, having sex, and here you are lusting, then you're going to come to church, you know that's dragging you down spiritually. You know it is. And you're listening to this music that's MF this and SOB this, and it's all about filth and garbage and pornography. I'm going to tell you, some of that music, man, is just like porn in musical form. Violent you know, some of it is satanic. Um, that stuff isn't going to help you spiritually. I mean, it's kind of common sense. It, it's like, so you're going to church listening to that filth, okay? And then you're going to come in here and worship the Lord. And you wonder why it feels like everybody else is on fire and you're still struggling. And so why don't you get the junk out of your life? Or the areas of dishonesty? Are you still lying? Are you still stealing things? Are you still cheating? Are you dishonoring your parents? Are you still rebellious toward authority? Are you envying what others have and materialistic? I want us to pray because this fire of holiness, I believe in River of Life is kind of a unique situation. I believe that God has drawn people here that are hungry for God. And you're here because you're hungry for God. There's a lot of places now where people aren't really going for that reason. They're going for other reasons. But I believe that River of Life, by and large, most people are hungry for God. And for us to be able to go deeper in the Lord, we've got to be willing to let God purify us and show us the things in us that must go. And I believe there's a fire of holiness tonight that you can sense in this place it's the fire of the Holy Ghost coming to help us get purified. And so I want us to really pray about these things. And um, let's repent tonight. Those that are listening or watching, let me just encourage you to, if you're in a vehicle or something, if you can, maybe pull off and really pray about this stuff and ask God to forgive you. If you're at home or whatever, and you can really get on your face and just seek the Lord. Lord, forgive me. Purify me. Take out of me. Don't hold back. Get out of me everything that's not of you. 
and let God really purify your life, on the other side of that, you will find such a freedom and such a joy in Christ. And it'll be so much easier to live for him. That's a powerful process. Let's go ahead and shut down recordings and let me know when you're done. And I want us to really pray as a church about these things tonight. Before we move chairs, I want us to really pray. Are we good? Can you play just some quiet music in the background? Just where you're at tonight.